Welcome to God Talk Pod, a literary critical analysis of George Martin's Song of Ice and Fire. Danny won. Enter the hero. This is huge. This is a huge chapter for so many reasons. It ramps up, or maybe better to say it rounds out many of the introductory chapters and themes while launching into really another major plot line with all new characters and definitely a new and important setting. So remember that here we are coming out of Catlin 1. That's where two parents just talk about their kids, basically the only thing that happens in the chapter. But here we get two kids without parents. And in the last pod or the last episode, um, I said that Catlin 1 and Danny 1 are a pair they are mirror images of one another. So please do refer to the prior episode if you haven't already done so. Because, or really, because the two are joined, right? Because the two are conjoined. I'm going to do a special episode specifically comparing and contrasting those two chapters and looking at the links across the two, looking at them in a way that the chapter-by-chapter format just doesn't really allow. So um, be on the lookout for that special Cat 1, Danny 1, Compare and Contrast episode. Okay, now, before we do anything else, before we get into the chapter, we must address one of the big real-life controversies of the series, one of the more disturbing elements of the story, and that is how George treats the sexualization of the young girls in the series. The argument I think that people make is something like, in the story, we see many young women exploited for their gender, for their powerlessness, for their sexuality, and that George is trading on that or benefiting from that himself. To me, I think the larger point is to recognize and to see the horror and the injustice, to see the horror and what is happening to Danny herself. I don't think that this is normalizing sexual slavery or it is normalizing normalizing sexualizing children and making that attractive. On the contrary, I think the text makes it quite clear that Danny is just a kid and she has no control over her choices, her body, her womb. I mean, George makes it clear at a number of points with quotes like, are you sure that the call likes his women this young? I mean, Danny is clearly a child she is shockingly young and this is meant to be shockingly disturbing it is clearly in no uncertain terms a depiction of disturbing behavior and george is aware of the fact that it is disturbing behavior so whereas people might criticize george for sexualizing children i think that these lines we see here in the text and in this chapter are meant to show, like George is just saying, hey, look, I know this is really not cool, and I'm raising my hand, and I'm acknowledging it right here. And we get their support for that, because even the most oblivious character, arguably in the entire book, is Viserys. 
the most oblivious guy acknowledges that this is like was totally whack. And so George does capture, I think, the horror, the, the horror of Danny's situation by showing us Danny's reaction, Danny's feelings, right? Remember, the entire chapter is shown Danny's point of view, right? It's not, we don't see like, you know, in Viserys's mind thinking like how great this is, right? We, we see it from the point of view of the victim. That means that we see her physical, so we see her mental and physical reaction. She trembles, she gets the chills, she gets goosebumps. She experiences physical revulsion at multiple points in the chapter. So I really do think that we are meant to take it as read. This is every bit as disturbing as you think it is. And I think George has basically acknowledged it right up front, right here in this very first chapter where this issue comes up. Okay, so hopefully we've addressed that issue and now we can move on to the chapter itself. So as per usual, we will start with the literal interpretation, just a review of the literal events of the chapter, and then we will look at the themes and meanings on offer. So what is the first sentence of the chapter? Her brother held up the gown, etc., etc. I am certain that it is true that every single chapter, including the prologue, to this point has featured talk about brothers. So this chapter is no different, right? But speaking of the prologue, we have to recognize that some of the themes on the very first page of this chapter also are evident in, in the prologue. Because remember there, if you, if you go back to that episode, if you listen to that episode, you will know that we talked a lot about how Waymar Royce doesn't see, doesn't hear, doesn't feel anything in his environment. Well, guess what? Meet his twin. Meet his twin Viserys. Viserys is, is clueless. It says, it says right here, Danny was 13, 13 years old, old enough to know that such gifts seldom come without a price. But Viserys is like, nah, whatever. He just wants to curry favor with me because I'm so great. So, I mean, dude, I, I just think the guy is clueless and it's evident on page one of the chapter. Next paragraph. So this is a quote. Danny listened and she heard things. So, again, in contrast to Viserys, in contrast to Waymar Royce, in contrast to all the deaf, dumb, and blind characters in the story, metaphorical deaf, dumb, and blind characters in the story, she is not like them. She is not senseless. Once, once again, it's the old two separate words we're talking about here, right? Senseless. Those characters don't see, they don't hear, they don't feel, they don't use their senses in any way to understand what's going on around them and to understand their reality. Danny is in clear, clear contrast. She is in opposition to Viserys and to really that entire, all of those characters of which we've seen great many so far in the book. Okay, here we have to ask another question. What are the first three lines that Danny speaks in the novel? One, is it really mine? Two, why does he give us so much? And three, what does he want from us, right? So she knows, I mean, right away, like, again, once again, this is just further, she knows nothing is free. Everything has a cost. And, but, but as we're going to find here in two seconds, right, she is the one that is going to have to pay the cost for her brother. So back to the very, very first, you know, how we began, like, 
she is going to pay this horrible, horrible price. Okay, and speaking of her brother, so in my version, the chapter begins on page 23. So if we go to the top of page 24, <laughs> speaking of her brother, top of page 24, we see the bully in full effect. He says, you don't want to wake the dragon, right? You don't want to wake the dragon, do you? With his nipple twisting nonsense. When they write the story of my reign, they will say it began tonight. I mean, my God, he isn't doing anything. All he's doing is twisting people's nipples and being a horrible, horrible brother. So this is just selfish. He's, I mean, clearly, I mean, 100%, no ifs, ands, or buts. He just is portrayed as a selfish, self-absorbed, senseless bully. I mean, it's unfortunate, but some brothers really suck. Okay, naturally, Danny wants to escape this nonsense. She wants to be free. So we hear her thinking about or wanting to be barefoot and breathless like a kid playing in the street. Why not? <laughs> Duh, you can see the terrible position that her blood and birth have put her in. Of course, we also get these famous lines where Viserys talks about our land, ours by blood right, and the classic one, the dragon remembers. That is all on pages uh, 24 and 25. And every chapter, so another thing that's interesting about this here as we go through is that every chapter so far has had a reference to King Robert. In the Catelyn chapter, we heard about Robert's rebellion and we got more insight into how Robert became the king. Well, it's only now that we get to see Viserys and Danny. It is only now that we understand for the first time the cost, the cost, the horrible human cost, the cost and the consequences of Robert's rebellion. This is setting up one of the central conflicts of the entire series. Robert, the rightful king, turns out to be the usurper. And Viserys is the intended or rightful inheritor of the Iron Throne. How horrific, you know, is that prospect? Also on page 25 in my version, we hear the criticism or the lumping together of the Starks and the Lannisters. They are both the usurper's dogs. Again, that's the harshest criticism you can make Viserys can offer. They're the lowest of the low. But we just heard, we just heard in the Catelyn chapter, the prior chapter, that Ned Stark hates the Lannisters and that Ned is the honorable and worthy one and friend of Robert. And the Lannisters are these like scheming, conniving, you know, latecomers to the party. But, oh, let's look at it from a slightly different point of view, from the point of view of the, the rightful king, the guy whose position has been usurped. Guess what? They're all just dogs. So I guess we have to ask the question, is Ned as different from the Lannisters as he really thinks he is, right? So maybe it really is just all in where you are sitting. It's a problem of perspective. Guess what? It's a problem of the eyes. I think we're going to probably hear that like a thousand times before we're done with this book. Also on 25, there's we get another just real kick in the pants. Danny's mother died during childbirth. Well, we know from the prologue that mothers... And, and, and mothers and the information that you get from a woman's tit, right? Those are those are super valuable sources of information. But Danny has been denied that relationship and Danny has been denied those insights. So page 25, that's also where we get the first reference to the house with the red door. The house with the red door felt like home and it felt safe to her. So she's comfortable there. This issue of 
what do you call home? What do you define home? What are the functions of home? Even though I haven't listed that among the big key themes of the series, I'm talking about things like maturation and the problem of the eyes and these kind of things. The reality is home and what does home mean is actually one of the big topics that's discussed in the series. That is one of the, the big issues or sort of underlying issues. And we see it here with respect to Danny. We see it here for the very first time. Next page, page 26, there are a bunch of key concepts in the story. This is where we hear the first explicit mention of slavery. That is important because if the story is really about justice, right? If it's about building a just society, as I, as I claim it is, then you have to answer questions about self-determination and the relationship of person to person and person to state. Or think of it this way, right? Here's another way to think about it. So think of it as the most extreme form of usurpation. I mean, you don't control even your body. You don't control your circumstances. You don't control your conditions. That is, the, that is a radical, the most radical, arguably, uh, usurpation possible. And what's Danny? So in this discussion of slaves, where, where does it leave Danny? She is nominally free, but effectively a slave. She is a slave to her brother's will. Or, or maybe it's Illyrio. We don't really know at this early stage. But she is clearly a slave to her brother's or Illyrio's wants and schemes and, and desires. Moving on. Page 26. The first mention of incest we, we get here, right? The bottom of page 26. She always assumed that she would marry Viserys when she came of age because the line must be kept pure. I don't know about you, but that is about as disturbing a thought. I mean, imagine this poor girl being married forcibly to this guy in the name of keeping the line pure. And that's horrific as well. So it's like out of the, what's the saying? Out of the frying pan into the fire. My God. Okay, so, I mean, really, right? She just can't catch a break. So also on 26, some very important things, things happen here. This is the scene where, the bath scene. The bath scene is where two servants come in to wash her. And the exact quote is, there was no slavery in the free city. Oh, no, wait. They were slaves, even though there was no slavery in the free city. Nonetheless, they were slaves. So, and we just said, right, go back, go back like two minutes in the tape. We just said, Danny, nominally free, nominally free, but in reality, she is a slave, a slave to the whims of her, of her brother. And I've said this a thousand times already. Every single thing that happens in the book is mirrored somewhere else. Well, here, here George mirrors it in the exact, it's in the same chapter. Danny, nominally free, but really she's a slave. Here there's two washerwomen, nominally free, but really they're slaves. And another thing that's important about the slaves, I don't know, maybe I should save this for the analysis, or maybe this is the analysis, who cares, right? Another thing that's interesting about the slaves is, there are two. One is the old woman, and the other is like 16 years old. And But the 16-year-old girl talks constantly, whereas the old woman never says a word. So flashback to everything you hear, or flashback to all of these characters 
that are privileged or that have privileged knowledge tend to be old women, right? Old man, old man. We've already established, based on like three chapters or whatever, we've already established the old man is a source of really good information. But young people are kind of dopey and misinformed or or maybe not misinformed isn't the right way. But again, their, their view of the world, their view of themselves isn't fully formed yet. So their judgments are often off or incorrect. So here's Danny with two women. Well, guess who's the one that's giving her the lowdown, the one who's giving her the data dump, the one who's giving her all of her information and insights. Turns out to be a dopey kind of kid just like her or a young, again, ill-informed kid just like her. Whereas the person who knows, the one who really knows, the old woman is silent. So poor Nanny is no none the wiser. Top of 27, we see the plum-colored dress. That, that's, a, that's a James Joyce signifier ding 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 um and we talked more about that in, in the uh, in the bloomsday episode also on page 27 right that again the young girl the young washer girl says call drogo is so rich that even his slaves wear golden collars right but guess who guess who gets a golden collar herself poor poor danny golden collar so that makes her one of drogo's metaphorical slaves i mean again there's the hits the hits just keep coming. I mean, this is terrible, right? And this is also where she has that first physical reaction, the sudden chill, the goosebumps. Well, I mean, we know that nothing good in the story happens or is associated with cold, with chills, and with goosebumps. So she is in a very bad situation, and she knows it. Later on 27, enter Illyrio. This is where we first see Magister Illyrio. Who, who rolls in with a bunch of flattery for Danny. So on the one hand, you're like, okay, he's associated with slavery. He's associated with this whole with this whole scam. You know, he's clearly using her just as he's using these other women. I think that that's, again, as I just said, that mirroring is established to tell us that this is Illyrio's plot or that at least he's, I mean, obviously he's clearly implicated in the plot. That's all I'm saying. So Illyrio's clearly implicated in this in this scheme to sell her off. But but what does he do? How does he play his cards? He is super suave and he's full of flattery and he's building her up and how she looks great and how she's you know she's a vision of beauty, right? I mean, just like flattery to the max. His his flattery goes to eleven. But but then, but of course, what happens? Bottom of page 27, Viserys is like, oh, you want to show some flattery, bro? Here's, here's my flattery. She's too skinny. Are you sure Drogo likes her this woman this young? I mean, this flattery game is like, this is horrible. I mean, the guy is clueless, dude. And again, I think that is George signaling to us that, yes, this is a really really gnarly situation this is extremely unpleasant and if even the dopiest most self-absorbed character that we've met so far is saying that she is too young then that is she is definitely too young i mean this this is crossing like every freaking boundary top of 28 top of 28 gets the classic 
classic line. Viserys says, what do you think I am? Some kind of fool? <laughs> I mean, that I don't remember the saying. Isn't there some old saying about how if you have to ask the question, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, so anyway, so when he says, you think I'm some kind of fool? I think maybe the answer is obvious to that. Page 28, we, oh, we get the first reference to the borrowed sword. We will discuss that in much greater detail in the Cat 1, Danny 1 compare and contrast episode. Page 28, we get just more data dump about goings on in Westeros, the conditions in Westeros. <laughs> but just to make sure that we get the point that how Viserys is like such a dope. Just to make sure, if you haven't got it yet, George follows all that up with a paragraph in which he, uh, Viserys makes all these nonsensical claims. I mean, just like utterly, obviously false claims, <laughs> right? about how everyone in Westeros longs for his return. I, the quote is something like, oh, let me see, I have it. Oh yeah, the small folk, small folk cry out for their king. To, then he's like, wait, they do, right? They do, don't they? I think that's the quote, they do, don't they? To which Illyrio, Illyrio, Illyrio clowns him and goes, oh yeah, of course, your people love you. But then he qualifies it. The kicker, the kicker is, oh, yeah, your people love you well. Or so my agents tell me. So look, man, Viserys does not know anything. And I mean zero about the circumstances, the reality of life in Westeros. He is utterly and completely oblivious, ignorant, and dependent upon other people for information. And, and what's worse, I mean, this is not, it's really, it's a very pathetic character. And I was just laughing, but really it makes you kind of sad to think about, you know, his, what a horrible situation this is and how his life has turned out. He is just totally oblivious and he's totally dependent upon other people and he has no understanding. He's utterly, he's not self-aware. He's not aware of anything. Again, he's, it's another one of the lost boys who is senseless and they're all over the book and he is maybe the archetype of them <laughs> but what's worse i mean again to show again george is just relentless just to show you how clueless the guy is he has illyrio basically mock him like right to his face and the guy doesn't even notice whereas in contrast though in contrast danny knows danny notices the power disparity she notices illyrio's mocking smile so and she notices that her brother doesn't know so, so she knows what he doesn't know. She understands the relationship between Illyrio and Viserys. It's clear to her, and it should be clear to us, Illyrio is using Viserys. He's just a tool. He's an empty vessel into which he's poured his own schemes and desires, right? And so he's just using him, just as he's using Danny. Okay, then we get some more, I mean, just more, more evidence-free claims. The usurper would pay for my head. He has tried his hired knives follow us everywhere. I mean, I think we have to keep our eyes out for that. Is there any evidence for that claim, right? In reality, do you really think, do you honestly believe if Robert Baratheon or if the King of Westeros, if the King of Westeros wanted to kill two children, do you really think that he couldn't have gotten that done in the intervening 13 years? So uh, it's an evidence-free claim, and I think it, we should be dubious of the claim. Okay, also on, this is 29 now, on 29, uh, we meet a slave, right? Here we do, we meet a real slave. His collar is ordinary bronze, Danny notices. <laughs> it's just, just as important. Whether it's bronze, whether it's gold, 
is the fact that she notices it at all. She is aware in a way that Viserys is not. The reason why it matters that it's bronze and not gold is because, again, the serving girl, or slave, sorry, the bath slave, told her that slaves all wore gold. So what we're seeing, this is like the first indicator, maybe the first of many indicators that everything the gal said was was off, right? So just another sign of the immaturity and ignorance of youth, or inexperience, maybe better way to put it. Okay, moving on, top of page 30, we meet a fugitive knight of Westeros. That will be very important in the story to come. And here again, we get many more lines about slaves and who does the law apply to. Slavery's going to be a big issue. But, or in the context of, or think about slavery being a big issue in the context of what does it mean to have a just society? That, that's the context. Or, or in the context of the usurpation theme. There's an interesting line on the top of page 31 in my version drogo uh, drogo has never he has never lost a fight he is aegon the dragon lord come again so let's put a pin in that one and we're going to come back to that in just a minute really in both pages 30 and 31 viserys acts like a just a horrible bully again i don't really know what to say at this point we got it george he's a dumb vindictive bully but i guess the real the real horror of the piece, the real kick in the pants, comes in the very last lines of the chapter. Viserys threatens Danny, he verbally abuses her, and he just generally acts like a real, I don't know, scumbag towards her. And it culminates with this admonition, smile and stand up straight. And so the last line of the chapter is her acquiescing to this clown shoes of a king. You know, she's just, she's powerless. And she's acting as a slave to her king's commands. It is just a brutal indictment of the man and indeed of the entire system. So um, that that was that was just a that last chapter was really, I mean, really disturbing. I think. Okay, I think that does it for our read through, for the analysis. Uh, let's remember that we're going to do a special episode contrasting Catelyn 1 and Danny 1. So that analysis we are going to provide separately here right now. Let's just focus on the other great and obvious and important parallel in this chapter. That is to James Joyce's Ulysses. This entire chapter is structured like the first episode of Ulysses or arguably the first two episodes, because some of the lines here appear to reference a famous section of the second episode of Ulysses. But otherwise, it closely tracks the Telemachus episode, and that's the first episode. Of course, the discussion and the chapter reread material here is spoiler-free, but I did do a major spoilers special podcast episode in which I talk more about Joyce's influence on the Song of Ice and Fire series more broadly. That is the Bloomsday special episode from June 16th, and you can find that in the podcast feed. Okay, so very briefly here, I will just summarize, I'll just summarize the broad arguments and the themes from Joyce that George mirrors here. So number one, James Joyce's Ulysses is the most famous example of point of view novel ever written. Joyce popularized the method. I'm not saying that he invented it. It's not as if there are no prior examples, but it was clearly really the most prominent sort of example, or it was thrust into the modern consciousness, let's put it that way, by Joyce. 
Okay, the second thing is that arguably the central theme of Ulysses, if you can say there's only one central theme, okay, the central theme, let's just call it that. The central theme of Ulysses is maturing or blooming into a fully function, uh, fully functioning, compassionate, caring adult. Third thing, another big prominent theme there um, that appears also here in this very chapter is the problem of the eyes as I am calling it. Of course, Joyce uses much more complicated language. He talks about the ineluctable modality of the visible and the parallax view, etc. Okay, the fourth one. This is the issue of metempsychosis or reincarnation, we're calling it. And we see that here in this chapter. And finally, the fifth big theme from Ulysses that we see here in this very chapter, and that's going to be expressed all throughout the books, is usurpation. Again, those things are all explicit from Joyce's work, and they're all explicit in this chapter. Okay, so let's, uh, let's, let's dive in. So the first one we're going to start with is maturation. So there are a few things we have to make clear right up front here. Danny is considered a woman grown, a woman old enough to wed because the quote, the direct quote is like she's had her blood. And later we hear that the male characters, the boys, they're considered man grown on their 16th birthday. These are arbitrary or physical markers, age related markers that are not the kind of maturity that I am talking about. What I am talking about is maturity in the literary sense that we've discussed as defined by Dante, and here in particular as defined by Joyce. So maturity for Dante, maturity for Joyce, is defined as an emotional and psychological maturity, being introspective, thoughtful, personally responsible, compassionate, understanding of others, understanding, yeah, definitely, understanding of others. I think that's the, the awareness of others and the concern for others rather than just the concern for themselves. So if, if you use that definition, look at Viserys. I think the text establishes him clearly, clearly as a case of for lack of a better term, arrested development. He is emotionally or psychologically, he's effectively the same kid of seven or eight years or however old he was when his parents died, right? But Danny too wants to play in the street with other kids. So even though she has her wits about her in a way that Viserys does not at all, she is still just a kid. Okay, so that's enough on, I think that's enough like definitional talk, right? We've defined our terms. At least that's what I mean when I'm talking about maturity. So, okay, let's get back to the, to the literary context. Maturity is a key theme in Ulysses. So just briefly, Stephen Dedalus, one of the central characters, is a young man who has no parents. His mother is dead and his father, well, his father is an alcoholic and he's just absent from his life. So effectively he has no parents. Of course, Viserys and Danny have no parents. The, the direct quote is like, uh, oh, I want to have it here. M mother died birthing her. Danny's mother died birthing her. And for that, her brother had never forgiven her. 
So how are we supposed to grow up without parents? How, how are Danny and Viserys supposed to mature without parents guiding? Well, not very well, obviously, in Viserys' case. So, I mean, one way to interpret it, or a sim- uh, you know, just a simplistic interpretation, is that Stephen spends the entire book, essentially, the entire book of Ulysses, searching for a metaphorical father. And at some point, he, he does find Bloom. Now, with respect to Danny and Viserys, well, we're just we're just gonna have to see. But but if Magister Illyrio is the caliber of mentor on offer here, then I then I do believe they're in serious trouble. And frankly, that explains the desperate situation that Danny finds herself in here in this chapter. Like if he has cooked up this scheme, or if he's supported Viserys in this scheme, then uh, I mean he's he's doing Danny a horrible, horrible disservice. Okay, so more on maturity, no spoilers, but there is a chapter later in the series when an older, more experienced Danny, a wiser Danny, yeah, right, a more mature Danny, a more mature Danny contrasts young Viserys with adult Viserys. And you see that she has this compassionate view. There is a sense in which she sees Viserys as a victim as well. So, yes, he is selling off his sister. Yes, he is old enough to know better. But, but I mean, throughout the work, we see that you need a mother and a father and mentors. And frankly, you need guidance and help all throughout life. But especially in childhood. And it turns out that Viserys did not have those things. So, of course, his own development is stunted. A related question that we have to ask, that again is going to be expressed in the series, is how are we supposed to grow up? What is the, what's the mechanism through which we reach maturity? So, partly it is through experience or innocence lost, if you like to, and we could express it that way. And in the books, we do have three children, three young women, Arya, Sansa, and Danny. These are three young ladies, three different scenarios, three different sets of experiences and circumstances, but all of whom will have to learn and they will have to mature and deal with some very, very tough experiences. And I think that is arguably the main concern or arc of the entire series right there. Like in a, in a nutshell, the experience, the suffering, enduring if you and i mean if you get good guidance and you make good decisions and you can make it to that final stage to the stage of maturity overcoming all those hardships that gets you to maturity that to me is really the arc of the entire story that george has laid out right we get to see or we're just going to say again no spoilers but we'll see how uh, how well Arya, sansa and danny negotiate those hurdles and those experiences and what sort of women they become. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, in Arya's case, oh, sorry, just sidetrack, classic digression. So digression into Arya for just two seconds. There is a, a hilarious, or well, maybe hilarious, maybe it's heartbreaking, actually. I don't know how you want to characterize it. But there is a scene in, I believe it's A Storm of Swords, where, where Arya tears up this other little kid's doll. <laughs> I mean, that's... That's kind of the whole point. The difference between Arya and that kid is entirely down to innocence, 
lost, that kid can still naively believe that there is some sort of storybook or glorious world of knights and heroes. But Arya knows that there's no heroes, right? I mean, that's her entire experience. Tells her that there are no heroes and that knights are devils in disguise. Okay, so <laughs> once again, Okay, just a digression over. I got carried away. Digression over. We're back to the to this chapter to Danny one. Well, Dan, from this very first episode, we see that Danny is going to have some horrible experiences. She is going to find out that slavery is real, no matter what the law says. She's wearing a golden collar, but golden collar or bronze, she is a slave nonetheless. And worse, maybe, I don't know, maybe worse is that, is the fact that her, it's her very own brother is the one that's doing the enslaving. So those are just some very harsh lessons for a kid to have to take on board. If I, I mean, if I'm honest, that's just horrible. But, you know, experience, suffering, enduring, again, we've defined those as steps on the road to maturity on Danny's road to maturity. And so we are seeing just now, chapter one, Danny one, she is on her, she is well on her way. She is on her path, but we can clearly see all the signposts are there. This is not going to be a pleasant journey. She is really set up for to struggle and to suffer and to endure. And we're just gonna have to see how that plays out. Okay, now we're gonna move on to the problem of the eyes. So in Ulysses, Joyce uses some fancy Greek terms, right? One of them is parallax. The parallax view or the parallax effect is an explicit acknowledgement that different perspectives or, or different points of view, that's bad, that's a better way to say it, different points of view yield different visions. So, I mean, I, I'm using it or we're using it as a literary term, but I mean, it is a real physical phenomenon. <laughs> the simplest example, this is super simple. If you just extend your arm out in front of you, make a fist and stick your thumb straight up in the air, pointing at the ceiling, just stick your thumb up in the air. Now, focus your eye on your thumb. So first, if you close one eye, then close the other eye. Left eye, right eye, left eye, right eye. And it works really well. <laughs> it works. It's like the example works better. If you use your thumb to cover or hide something in the distance, and then watch as it as that thing appears and disappears, appears and disappears as you open and shut your eyes, or first one eye and then the other eye. So that is the parallax effect. But we've already mentioned it here. We've already shown it here. This chapter is like the bizarro world version, the bizarro world where everything that we saw in the earlier chapters is reversed. In this chapter, Robert is not the rightful king. Viserys is. <laughs> Ned is not a righteous lord dealing out justice. In fact, he's a totally unjust usurper. I mean, there's, again, so many examples. So it's just... It's, it's like I say, the bizarro world is the opposite. So that radically different view comes from Danny and Viserys' frankly radically different background and experience. Same event, right? So the same events, but the experience of them, the understanding of them, the view of them is 180 degrees, just radically different. So, so that is the problem of the eyes. Or one aspect of the problem of the eyes that's pretty, uh, that's like totally evident here. Then there's the other 
aspect or issue to the problem of the eyes, and that's just that. This goes back to the prologue, right? So, some people do not see what is right in front of them. So over and over, Danny sees things and notices things that Viserys does not. Or, or she understands things differently than Viserys does. And maybe, maybe a good example here is the use of the word home. When she says, I want to go home, she just means home as the house with the red door, right? Peace, tranquility, safety. But his understanding or his idea is totally different. He is acting as if the Seven Kingdoms were some kind of home to him. I mean, that's, you know, again, maybe we think that's laughable, but that's the parallax, right? That's the literary parallax, in effect. From his chair, from his view, home is the Seven Kingdoms. And from her chair, home is... Can I just get to the house with the red door, please? Can I just have some peace and stability in my life? I, I don't, you know, I'm not interested in being a, a queen or a concubine or a slave or whatever it is. Okay, now metempsychosis. Joyce uses another, another complicated Greek term, metempsychosis. In, the, in, in Ulysses, Molly Bloom says, metempsychosis. So metempsychosis. So anyway, uh, Basically, we're just talking about reincarnation. This is going to be an important issue later in the series. And here we just get the first hint of it. And in this regard, or like the first nod to it is on uh, the top of page 31 in my version. Talking about Drogo, the Sarah says, he has never lost a fight. He is Aegon. The dragon lord come again. So there is a nod to the idea of reincarnation of souls. And, and then, so further, what's, what's interesting is that we just read that you are supposed to keep the line pure. That is, only a Targaryen can marry another Targaryen. Well, guess what? If Drogo is Aegon, the dragon lord come again then we are seeing a Targaryen marry a Targaryen. And so it is totally in line with Targaryen tradition. And then I think the fact that George tells us, oh, we're supposed to keep the line pure Targaryen plus Targaryen only. And then the next sentence or, or right after that, he says, oh, he is Aegon the Dragon Lord coming in. To me, that is very clear since, since in my interpretation, these are all clear references to Joyce. They're all clear references to Ulysses. To me, that is a clear signifier of that this is like, we're talking about metempsychosis here. So metempsychosis is important for another reason. And that, remember now, it is a Greek concept. And in the Greek conception, well, to be more accurate, I shouldn't talk about Greek, you know, ancient Greek society. I'm not an expert in ancient Greek society. But what I do know is that in Plato's view, so the Platonic view, is that souls are immortal. Bodies die, but souls are eternal. And in Plato terms, and as far as Plato is concerned, knowledge comes from remembering information that you gained in past lives. So let me say that again. Plato thought that knowledge was information called or remembered from a past life. You are just 
activating or tapping into latent knowledge. That's that's what he thought. So learning wasn't like creating knowledge from nothing, right? In his mind, you're not creating knowledge from nothing. In his mind, the process of learning is really unlocking or tapping into all of that accumulated knowledge and experience in your soul. But we keep <laughs> but all throughout but all throughout the chapter, we keep hearing that Danny cannot remember or that she forgets. So all of that to me is meant to demonstrate her lack of knowledge, her lack of education, her youth and her naivete. Again, just to underscore how young she is, how immature she is, how undeveloped she is. Page 23, she had forgotten what it's like. Page 24, perhaps the dragon remembers, but she couldn't. Page 25, she could not remember Dragonstone. So if we think in terms of metempsychosis and recurring souls, then Danny does know these things. And some, there's some sense in which she is aware of these things. There is a deep well of knowledge for her to tap into, but she's not able to do so yet. She has not had the benefit of a mother, a teacher, a mentor, any, or any guidance. She lacks fundamentally training and knowledge and refinement. She has never been able to tap into that, that well of ancestral knowledge. It's clear that her eyes are open. She is aware. She is aware in a way that Viserys never is or never will be. And she, she's, a, she's a good student, right? I mean, she would be a perfect student in your class. But her education, to this point at least, her education has been sadly neglected. Okay, now, so then we, we wrap up. The last, the last big theme is, is usurpation. And then Joyce's Ulysses, the final word of the first episode, the final word of the Telemachus episode is usurper. So that is absolutely, positively one of the huge, huge themes of that book. But I am also certain that it is one of the big themes of the A Song of Ice and Fire series. And it's even one that we, we're going to watch here. We're going to see it in this book. It's going to unfold chapter by chapter. So, so that is one that we're going to be calling it out um, as we go. But, but it's just even here in this chapter, we can see that theme of usurpation. It's play out repeatedly. It's all over. So look at Viserys. Yes, his position has been usurped, but, but it's more than that. His ancestral home has been usurped. Why? I mean, think about this. Why is there the constant emphasis? Why is there the constant emphasis on how they're always having to move? They're always having to, you know, beg or rely on someone else's hospitality for housing, for food, for shelter. That it's because his position has been usurped. Yes, but he has been displaced. He's been usurped in his own life. Of course, of course there's all the references to the borrowed sword. Again, the sword, the mother's crown, the dragon stone, all the symbols, all the symbols of power gone, usurped. He is in a state of utter dependence. Or, or just look at Danny. Danny's freedom, her free will, her agency, all of them usurped. Her idea of home, I mean, the house with the red door, all of it displaced, usurped. 
I mean, what is the definition? Uh, so maybe we should have started with this. What's the definition of usurpation? I mean, when I think about it, it's the forcible seizure or the forcible subjugation. Well, what, I mean, how else can you think of it? She's not willingly marrying Drogo. She is being forced to do so. So her own, she's not in control of her, her free will. She's not in control of her circumstance. She's not in control of her own body. That is, to me, that is usurpation to the max. Usurpation squared. Okay, so I think I've ridden this Joycean horse into the ground for now. So <laughs> come back, come back next time for the Cat Danny, for the Cat One Danny One Compare and Contrast episode. And then we go back to the text proper with Eddard One. Uh, that is where we finally, finally get to meet the usurper himself, Robert Baratheon, <laughs> as well as those pesky Lannisters. So that that's going to be, uh, some fireworks are going to kick off there, I assure you. Okay, thank you for listening. Catch you next time. Bye.